Um, we are entering the second chapter of First Peter. Uh, we're moving at a rapid pace through this book. We should finish it by 2023. First um, Peter to, I think it's good going over each time exactly what we're hearing. We're hearing a letter that was written in the early 60s, not 1960s, the zero 60s, uh, written by the apostle Peter uh, within 30, 40 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. He's writing likely from Rome to Christians scattered throughout uh, what is now modern-day Turkey, what would have been Asia Minor, then part of the Roman Empire, to a very diverse selection of people. And he is writing to encourage them to live as a faithful minority amongst a culture that ranges from kind of a bemused interest to outright um, opposition. He's also writing with the timing of likely being just prior to much heavier persecution coming under Nero. So he's writing to these Christians to encourage them to live faithfully when cultural pressures are pushing the other direction. And he's doing this by reminding them of who they are and the message that they have. They are elect exiles, is how he opens the letter. They are people who have been chosen by God as a body to be in this place, but that also then sets them at odds with people around them and the culture around them. They are exiled in that manner, and they are also exiled in the manner that they are not in their natural home. They are looking towards a better home. So, We've covered a lot of this, this track of salvation, and Peter has turned his attention as he's closing out now in this portion we're looking at today, this kind of theological description of what has occurred in these people's lives to bring about this new birth and the challenges at a broad level that come from that. Um, what's interesting is he turns primarily as he turns towards a moral life they're supposed to live in, and it has a very corporate nature to it. They are challenged at the end of chapter 1 to be purified for a sincere brotherly love. And they are to love one another from a pure heart. And then what Terry covered a few weeks back, the things they're said to put away, told to put away are malice, deceit, hypocrisy, and slander. Now, those are good sins to put away under any circumstances, but those are very pointedly sins that destroy relationships. They will destroy a community. They are sins that tear at the things that bind people together. So that's where he's going when we get to this section, and I'm going to pick up and continue re read what Terry covered a few weeks back and go a little beyond what we're going to focus on. We're actually looking at the middle section of what I'm going to read here. So this is 1 Peter, starting at the beginning of chapter 2. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, keeping your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then he goes on to give more specific pointed challenges to these people he's writing, more directed encouragements. So you can see what's happening. He's come out of an area where he's talking about who these people are, and he shifts into talking about this idea of what they're being built up in, into. And then he gives this magnificent summary of who they are. They are a, royal, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's what Terry's going to pick up probably next week to cover that. And then he turns into more directed exhortations. The part we're focusing on is as you come to him, a living stone. And he's talking about the life of the church and how we are built together as a body. Peter's trying to tell them something, a final bit about who they are corporately before he turns to speak about what they're supposed to do. And you can kind of, you can pick it up if you take out a bit of what, um, to speak uh, lightly, the fluff. But it says, he comes out after talking about that they need to put away all malice. That he says, as you come, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, he goes on. He's trying to talk about this structure they're being built up into. The summary of it is essentially that you are both the temple and the priesthood. You are both the place where this work of God is being carried out, and you are the people through whom this work is being done. To put that in the broader context, you're living together. The reason he's been making these challenges about how they need to live, about the reason he's been telling them to put away hypocrisy and envy and slander, it needs to be radically changed because collectively you are both the temple of God and the priesthood. You are both doing the work and the place where the work is done. That's who you are, a royal priesthood. So abstain from these works of the flesh which corrupt that and corrupt the message you have been entrusted with. Again, the summary of this is that you are both a temple in which God's work is being done and the priesthood that is doing that work. And really, that alone is a sufficient point. If the, this book did not contain the portions of Scripture that I cut out as I was reading through it, we probably wouldn't have a bunch of commentaries noting how something gigantic is missing. It flows naturally. This is the life you've been given. This is how you've been transformed. Put away these sins because you are a priesthood and the temple is what you're being built up into so that you might maintain this message. That all makes sense. Which means 
Peter is pausing midway through an argument that makes sense by itself. He breaks up the flow of what he's saying to take a bit of a rabbit trail. There's something he wants to put in here more foundational to what he's saying. He wants to pause in the midst of this idea that as you come to him, now let's talk about who he is before we talk again about what's happening in you. He wants to draw out the centrality of Jesus in this structure that's being built. And that's what I want to focus on today. We are living stones. We are a priesthood. We are offering sacrifices. And all of that needs to be grounded in Jesus or else it goes astray. And it is easily detached from him. And that's why Peter pauses. He pauses to tie our honor into Jesus. He pauses to, to, to tie the shape and the way church is structured and the way we are being built up into Jesus. And he pauses to tie our purpose and how it is accomplished into Jesus. And he draws on a metaphor in all of this, this idea of a cornerstone. Um, we got the passage that Isaiah, um, that Isaiah read that Heidi wrote centuries ago. Um, we got the passage from Isaiah that Heidi read where it references a cornerstone. Um, the other passages he references here, there's Psalm 118, and I believe it's Isaiah 8 is the uh, last one that gets referenced. So he's stringing together three Old Testament passages, which is, if your Bible's formatted like mine is, that's why it looks weird. All of a sudden it breaks because he's quoting the Old Testament three times, just stringing it together as one continuous thought. Cornerstones are not things that come up in our day-to-day -day life. Um, if you haven't been around the church a lot, there's a decent chance you've never come across the concept of a cornerstone. I literally work in the architectural um, community, and we don't talk about cornerstones because they really aren't a modern part of how we build buildings anymore. A cornerstone is the building, that the going back to more ancient ways of building buildings. It's the stone that gets laid first as a foundational stone, and it's also the stone then that gives shape to the building. Because basically you put this one square in the corner, and from that you know where the building is, because that's the stone that gets laid first, and you have two walls that are going out in the two directions, so you get the direction the building's going. That's why you need a cornerstone that is well-shaped. If you're trying to build a square, and your cornerstone is not square, you end up with the trapezoid. That makes sense? I don't know how many people like geog uh, geography, geometry. But that's why you lay a cornerstone. It gets put there to give a location to the building and to give it the shape that it has. And that's why it needs to be perfectly formed. Um, it, because of that, it also has a certain ceremonial function to it. Um, some cultures in ancient times would basically put like sacrifices or plants or a dead animal underneath the cornerstone, something symbolic because they're consecrating this ground. And also it has a symbolic meaning. This is like the seed from which the building is birthed. So it puts, it is this foundational at the beginning stone that controls the rest of the building. That's what the cornerstone is. So keep that in mind. It is an important honored stone that shapes a building. Keep that in mind as we look at these elements that Peter, Peter is going to talk about, about Jesus. Wow. 
And keep also in mind the central point that he is making, that we are a priesthood and a temple that has been put together for a purpose. This thing, these things he's going to say about Jesus aren't meant to be divorced from that main idea. They are to give a foundation and a shape to that idea. So first, Jesus as our model. When we think of how we are being built up as a temple, the referent point, the thing that we're supposed to meditate on is not bricks. Like he doesn't say you guys are being built up like a temple, so go stare at the temple and take in the bricks, see how they're shaped, see how things hold them together. I don't know what it is, the cement, there we go, the cement holds them together. And think about how you too are like bricks being held together by a cement of love. That's not the direction he's going with this. The thing we are meant to meditate on in this idea is Jesus. Jesus is the living stone. He is the model. We are like living stone. Jesus is the living stone. The thing he wants us to meditate on that we want to consider as we look to what it means to be a living stone that's being built up is Jesus. Which means the main point of what he wants us to think about goes well beyond this sermon. It really goes well beyond this letter he's writing to you. He's saying, you know something of who Jesus is. You have been called by Jesus. You follow Jesus. You've heard the stories of who Jesus is. Meditate upon those because he is the living stone and the model of what you're being built up into. But he also is pointing to some specific things about Jesus that we're supposed to consider here. Namely, that he is honored and that he is rejected. So we're supposed to keep in mind all of who Jesus is, but Peter wants to call out specifically how Jesus is the one whom God honors, and he is also the one who is rejected by men. And that is to say that the honor comes to him, and it also comes through him to us. He is the cornerstone that is chosen by God and precious. A cornerstone is a valuable thing that needs to be placed correctly. The builder comes out and chooses the right cornerstone and puts it in that place to set the building in place. In that sense, Jesus is the elect cornerstone. He's the chosen cornerstone. So we have um, Paul, Peter is talking to those whom he has referenced as elect exiles, and he's telling them about Jesus, who is the elect cornerstone, precious in God's sight. But the honor that he receives doesn't stop with him. Behold, I am laid in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. And then he goes on. So there is honor that comes to Jesus. There is also then honor that comes to those who are found in Jesus. The word that gets translated as precious here is from the same word group as honor. So it could be the cornerstone chosen and honored. So the honor is for you who believe. He wants to see us, Peter wants us to see a direct link between the honor we receive in God and the honor that Jesus receives. We don't find some divorced honor sitting outside by ourselves. We are, as Terry pointed out, created in the image of God. That is ours. 
But there is another honor, the honor that comes through him coming and finding and calling us and bringing us into Jesus, whereby we take on an honor that is greater than our own. And we receive Jesus' honor. And there is no shame for them that are found that way. Now the question is, why does shame get mentioned at all? Is the Bible just going negative for some bizarre reason? It just wants to be a negative book periodically? No, again, Peter is drawing contrasts. He draws contrasts through this book continuously. Last week, I spoke about the contrast between that which is perishable and that which is imperishable. Here he's trying to draw another contrast between shame and honor. There's two reasons he's doing this. One is it's a warning. Now, not a negative warning to control through fear, but it's the warning I give my kids, like, that's hot, don't touch it. And sometimes negative examples are needed. I mean, if you think about you're coming, and let's say you're struggling in your marriage, and you go to one friend uh, who's got a marriage that's going well, and you ask them to speak into your marriage, and they tell you to spend time with your spouse. You work late, but when you come home, focus on your spouse have good evenings together, really dig in and don't view each other simply as a partner for doing some job and actually build this relationship. And you've got another buddy who also seems to be having a good marriage and he gets home from work and he goes out to the clubs with his other single friends and he seems really happy in this whole situation. Now what is helpful in that situation is if your first friend also says, well, and also look at him and don't do that. Because Though that looks like it's working now, it is not going to work in the long run. They're burning through the resources they have, and they will reach a time where the relationship is essentially dead because they're not sewing into it at all. And that needs to be said because you're standing here going, there seems to be two examples, and this one looks like a lot more fun. And they're, both their marriages seem to be happy. So you want both this guy to say, do this, and also say, don't do that, and give a warning there. So we have a similar thing here where there's a warning simply that we also we need to believe in Jesus, but also you're in a culture that is not supportive of this. You're in a culture where there's pressure against it. You're in a culture where there is rejection that is felt. And you need to be here. That path eventually leads to shame. It is receiving honor now. Eventually there is shame. And that's the other reason it's needed. It's needed because there's pressure. These people likely feel rejected right now. And if they don't feel rejected right now, they will feel rejected eventually. So what Peter is coming to say is, take heart, Jesus was rejected too. And there is honor in that rejection. Jesus was rejected, and through his rejection, he was brought into a place of honor. Very often, the honor that Christians receive is found in the midst of rejection. And we just need to be strengthened for that. And that's where Peter gets into these Old Testament texts. It's not the first time that most of these texts get used in reference to Jesus. Jesus does that himself. He tells a parable in each of the um, synoptic gospels. 
where, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where it's towards the end of his ministry, and he's talking to the religious leaders, and he tells a parable about a vineyard that has been set up. The vineyard is to symbolize and speak of the religious community of uh, Israel, and it has people who have been put over it as stewards, which speaking of the religious leaders of this community. And the vineyard owner, God, wants to see the payment of this vineyard he has planted and wanted to grow, so he sends people to it, prophets, to come address these people, and they reject them, they kill them, they cast them out, and they hold on to this vineyard. And at last, the man says, I will send my son to them. Surely they will respect my son and give what's due. And they look at this and say, the heir has come. Let us kill him and cast him out, and the vineyard will be ours. And then Jesus asked the question, what will the man do with these people? And the answer is he will cast them out and give the vineyard to someone else. And that's where he cites, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The man who is cast out by them is the one that becomes the cornerstone. Jesus is talking, he's both giving a parable against these people, and he's also speaking of the fact that they will reject him and kill him, and that is not a speed bump on the way to what he is intending to do, but it is actually the way that the cornerstone gets laid. It becomes a stone of stumbling. Now, I was trying to tell you, I have, there was a time when I was in, I think it was fifth grade, and we went to the High Museum of Art in Atlanta, because I was in the Atlanta area. And I was a fifth grader walking around through modern art, which is an interesting experience for a fifth grader. So I'm just happily looking at the walls, trying to figure out what on earth's going on. And I am upright one moment, and I am flat on my face the next moment. And I'm confused as to what just occurred. And I look back, and there is a small black stone carved with like sharp edges and polished, just sitting in the midst of the, of the middle of the room. And I look over and you can see the placard for what it was. I had been blissfully looking around at what I had taken as the art in the room and did not expect to see art on the floor that I then tripped over. So, fifth grade Brian. But that's the way that it works, and that's why we have to have sympathy, or at least I have sympathy for these religious leaders, for the people who see Jesus and reject him, cast him out, and kill him. Because they had these scriptures too. They looked at these scriptures, and they see a message of one who's coming. They hear promises. They know that a Messiah is coming, and then they see Jesus, and he isn't what they expect. He doesn't match up with this, so they reject him. They look at him and they say no. God is placing a stone there. He's putting a cornerstone in place. And a cornerstone both gets laid and also has a direction it's going to go. And they look at that cornerstone and they say, that will be a misshapen building. That one cannot be cast off. It needs to be tossed outside. And that's exactly what happens. That stone gets thrown outside and that's where the building gets built. They functionally say, I could never believe in a Messiah who was like that. And that's a common refrain we get. 
I could never believe in a God who would be like this. It's usually matched up also a little while later with you're just making God in your own image, which is a really weird connection if you think about it. I could never believe in a God who's like this, but I have my own beliefs as to how, but you're making God in your image. So it's a strange combination, but it comes with this idea of I have a limit on what I can accept about this person of God. But we need to allow the real Jesus to be the shape of the cornerstone. And we should expect to struggle here. If you've never struggled with some aspect of who God is or who Jesus is, you're either a natural born saint, which doesn't exist, or you just haven't listened strongly enough to what Jesus is saying. Because Jesus and his ways are foreign to us. So many of the Psalms run along the lines of, this makes no sense to me, this hurts, I'm struggling, no resolution, still I'll trust you and I'll worship you. That is psalm after psalm after psalm. We read it and want to say, here's what sucks, here's what makes sense about that. Because this makes sense, I will worship you and trust you. All we get is, this is what sucks, I will worship you and trust you. We also have a fantastic example of this is the book of Habakkuk. Uh, Habakkuk is basically looking around at him and he sees the sinfulness and wickedness of Israel at the time. And he calls out to God saying, don't you see this? And God says, yes, I do. I'm sending the Babylonians. It's where you can almost hear the gears in uh, Habakkuk's uh, mind grind to a halt. because He's like, wait, they're more wicked than we are. And I know you're not a kind of God who takes uh, pleasure in that. But I'll just wait for you to correct me. And God essentially goes on to say, yeah, but I'm sending them and they also will be judged eventually. But this is the vehicle through which this is coming to correct my people. He doesn't take the direction we're looking to go and we should not expect Jesus to conform to anything. Through a cultural aspect, to a political aspect, to anything we have brought into the story, we should not expect him to perfectly match into anything. And if he does, we're likely trying to just as quickly as we can sand off corners. We need to expect to be exiles. To not find that perfect match in this world. We need to be watchful that we are not and we need to be ever watchful about this, that we are not creating a cornerstone of our own making and calling it Jesus. It's what the religious leaders were doing. They were holding up a certain interpretation of what they understood God's law to be, and they look at Jesus and say, this cannot be it. It doesn't match. And we do the same anytime we set something else up as a boundary for who Jesus can be. You can see it if you've set up Jesus as a, and we see this in our age, Jesus set up as the American God who has a certain shape because he is an American God. Or he's tied, again, to a political party or to an ethnic group. We see this around the world where Jesus becomes tied to this and shaped by this, and anything that goes against that gets cast out. I don't think we have 
in this church, anybody who's looking to set up the white American ethnostate Christianity. If we do, we can talk about it. No. But we also need to be careful that we don't let a concept dictate who Jesus is to us. We can't some concepts are very useful as hermeneutic tools of ways of interpreting, but if we come to this and say love and this understanding of love then dictates who Jesus can be, we're doing the same thing. If we come and say peace and comfort and that dictates what he can ask of us and what it means, we're doing the same. If we come and say freedom and this, it just runs the same way, we come with these ideas that are true and then we have an interpretation of them, and if we let that interpretation limit who Jesus can be, we are doing the same thing. We're trying to sand off a corner on the cornerstone to get it to better shape the way we want this to be built. Those are true. Yes, God is love. But God knows better than us how we should love. The law and the prophets hinge on love your neighbor as yourself and love God. That doesn't mean that we then go back and reread the law and the prophets to, with a black sharpie marking out the parts that we don't think match up to that. It means we understand what was happening there through a lens of love and understand love through the lens of what was happening there. Similarly, God brings us peace and comfort. He does. But he also bring, he often brings us peace and comfort through things that are not peaceful or comfortable. And he brings us freedom, but he brings us freedom to live as we should live, not however we would like to live. And if we come with any of those concepts and try and say, this is how God must be. This is how Jesus must be because I have this concept that is my controlling idea. We have set something else up there as the cornerstone. And they're useful for a while. That's the danger. It looks the same for a while, but down the road, eventually you find out that the, road that was, the wall that was supposed to go straight that way is veering 15 feet off to the right. And then you're stuck with two choices. Either in humility, you tear the wall back down, and you admit that you wasted time, you wasted energy, and you basically feel slightly foolish and embarrassed, or you look to redefine the cornerstone because the wall must be right, the cornerstone must be wrong. So our, the challenge to us is to let Jesus, as Jesus is, be the cornerstone, and to let him dictate the shape of the building, and to expect there to be friction in our lives and our hearts that occasionally push against this. And to some extent, take comfort in that. It means we have someone who is foreign to this world speaking to us and challenging us about how we can live better. If you're not getting wisdom out of Jesus that trumps what you can get out of the stand at Whole Foods, you're not hearing from Jesus fully. And the reason we have to do this, this isn't, God's just not a stickler who really likes straight buildings, metaphorically. He doesn't just like, I really, he's not just very OCD and wants everything particularly shaped. He wants this to occur because we have a purpose. This building is being put in place for a purpose. And if we don't start with Jesus and we can build it however we want, we can make this about whatever we want it to be. 
Church can be a career support group. It can be a very nice daycare. I mean, this is my kid's favorite three hours of the week. Rose's comment two weeks ago when we had Terry's birthday party for church was, we're not doing church on Sunday, that's wrong. But we, that's not what this is meant to be. This isn't meant to be parenting help. This isn't meant to be life coaches. This isn't meant to be something that helps us get ahead in our career. This isn't meant just to be a social club. It is a group and a body of people that has been formed with a purpose, and that's why Jesus has to put the shape to it and make so we know what it's about, so we are acting in the right manner, and we are focused on the right things. The purpose we've been given is to offer spiritual sacrifices to God acceptable through Jesus Christ. That's the one that's laid down here. A fantastic question is, what on earth are those? Now, it probably at a broad scale has in mind anything we do that is good and acceptable to God. But in a very narrow view, what Peter probably has most specifically in mind in this is a message we proclaim that we are proclaiming a good message. And that's why he ties this back uh, in verse 9, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a body that has been formed together to proclaim a message, a message about who God is, which is, again, why we need to be shaped by God so we might proclaim the right message about who he is. It's why we need to be shaped by him, because it's his message. It's why we need to be changed morally, because we are his messengers. And that's the context of what most of what's going to happen in the next few chapters, where Peter challenges people to deal with really bad circumstances in challenging ways. Not the ways that out of the gate, most of us would counsel these people to deal with these challenges, but Peter is concerned with a message. He's concerned with a witness about who Jesus is to the world around them. He wants these people to live faithfully in a way that upholds their identity in Christ and sees them through to the end and also live faithfully in a way that when the world looks at them, they at least know who Jesus is. Now, the good news is that Jesus completes this. Every action we take is tinged with sin somehow. I don't think I've ever been fully loving. It's always a little bit of selfishness in there, a little bit of me trying to get my own it's pleasurable. It's whatever it is to try and get something out of it. But the good news is that in Jesus, we have a covering for our sin and one who also completes that good work and makes it full. I love my kids 85% of the way on a good day. Jesus sees the other 15% through. So when the act is looked at upon God, he sees Brian loves his kids and he's doing a good work acceptable to me. I'm proclaiming a message about who Jesus is and the way that I love my kids, even imperfectly. And that's the other reason we need to be, uh, there's also comfort we can take in this because as we think about this, I mean, I said we need to let Jesus be the cornerstone. We need to look at this and put the cornerstone down. And the truth is none of us see that cornerstone clearly. None of us is the one who actually has the perfectly crystal clear image of the exact shape 
the dimensions and where it goes that it might be built perfectly. Any of us left to our own devices will consistently go astray. We are people of our culture. As much as I'm saying we should push against it, we should hear from God, we should not let it shape our interpretations, we are going to again and again and again. And all you need to do to be convinced of that is just read church history throughout the years, and you can see how much they are shaped by wherever they're sitting. And we are shaped the same way. We need to fight against that as much as possible, but we also need to know that the perfection of that is not required for our salvation. It is not required for the love of God to be upon us. God loves us and he has put a task to us. He loves us and he has called us to be his people. He loves us. He has given us a title and a position that blows our minds, or at least it should. And it's not because we execute it perfectly. Our challenge is to do it the best we can, to be faithful, to be humble, to admit when we're struggling with the way God wants to do things, to seek to submit even when we disagree occasionally in the hopes that we will be transformed. But in all of this, we find a grace. We find a love that holds us and delights in us in the midst of it. So that is our foundation. Jesus is the one who receives the honor, and through him we receive honor. He is the one who is rejected, and we can take comfort in that when we are rejected. He is the one who has been laid outside because he has been rejected to build this temple, and he has been the one who gives purpose to it. And in that context, we can hear that we have been made both the temple and the priesthood. We are both the location and the ones who are doing God's work and that we have a message to proclaim about who God is. Father, I thank you. I thank you that none of this rests on the perfection of our works. I thank you that your love for us does not rest on our perfection. I thank you that we can look in comfort and in joy to him who is perfect. Father, I pray that you would make each of us to know even more so how much we are loved, how much we are acceptable and treasured by you prior to any good work we make. I pray that Hearing that and knowing that, Lord, would leave us even more open to challenge by you. Lord, that we could look at our lives and see a place where we have gone completely against the way you would desire us to live and never hear condemnation. That we would hear the challenging rebuke occasionally of a father who loves us but who never condemns us, who urges us to walk in the right ways and walks with us along the way, who corrects our steps, but does not demand perfection to walk with him. Father, be one who transforms us. 
Let your spirit fall upon us to guide us. Let it illuminate Jesus that we might evermore see his perfections. Father, strip away things that would blind us to his glory. Anything we have set up and that we hold that obscures a vision of whom Jesus is, Father, work to remove it in us, that we might see and proclaim him more purely, that he might be more and more the delight of our hearts. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.